the time has now come for us all to do more. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. Because the critical thing we must do... I'm speaking to you at what I know is an increasingly challenging time. A time of disruption in the life of our country. A disruption that has brought grief to some, financial difficulties to many, and enormous changes to that Unless we act, we could see death in this country running at several thousand a day. A peak of Don't forget, hands, face, space. March 2020 is when the UK entered its first national lockdown. Since then, COVID-19 has seen the government spend hundreds of billions of pounds in order to protect primarily the health of older generations. In fact, by March 2021, the total amount spent passed £400 billion. That's the highest rate of government borrowing outside of wartime. But the economic burden of this spending has not been shared equally across the generations. As our last five podcast episodes have shown, young people have received the short end of the stick with regards to issues such as mental health, education, jobs and housing, to name a few. They've had a pivotal moment of their lives disrupted by the pandemic. And for this reason, we can call them Generation COVID. I'm your host, Elisa Amwar, and in our final podcast episode, we're going to take a look back at a year of intergenerational injustice due to the pandemic. I'll be taking you on a whistle-stop tour of key events since the first lockdown, discussing record-breaking facts and figures, whilst also talking to young people and experts along the way. So what if we analysed a year in the life of Generation Covid? What if? What if? What if? What if? A monthly podcast series in partnership with IF, the Intergenerational Foundation. August 2020. Schools and universities close their doors and rather hastily transition to online learning. But what about exams? Well... Let's have a look what happened. We recognise that this will mean it's not possible or fair for all exams to go ahead this summer as normal. The Education Secretary will work with Ofqual to put in place alternative arrangements. No! 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 I worked hard, I worked so hard, and to get APBC is unjust. Shame on them! Shame on them! Shame on them! Shame on them! We say fight back! It's brilliant to see so many of you here. I totally understand why you are angry with this government. Justice for the working class! Come out, Gavin! Come out, Gavin! Come out, Gavin! Come out, Gavin! Oh dear, so that didn't go to plan, did it? With exams unable to take place, the government coded a unique algorithm to standardise results, taking into account each school's past performance. This postcode lottery system severely discredited each student's individuality and severely disadvantaged those from working class backgrounds. 
Almost 40% of students received grades lower than their teachers had predicted them. Thousands marched to the streets to protest and the government then undertook a dramatic U-turn. But for many, it was too late. The university places had gone and their future plans suddenly disappeared. I talked to Olivia Clark, a young activist from Greater Manchester, who was a victim of the postcode lottery. So I was quite hopeful because there was talk of, oh, it will be based on your past work. It will be based on your past um, assessments. And I am not very academic in the sense I don't perform well in exam environments. So I was really excited and thinking to myself, yes, got it in the bag. It'll be fine. My homework, my in-class assessments speak for how I learn. And then everything started to kind of spur up in the air. And it was like, what is going on? There was so much unclarity with what the future of grades look like both at GCSE level and A level grades and I think I really understood both perspectives because my brother was doing his GCSEs that year as well so he was missing out on them and then it came about that there was going to be an algorithm that would be predicting our grades and no one really knew what that would look like as such until GCSE until A level results day um like I think it was the week before it was like it's going to be a postcode lottery how does that work (laughs) do you just put that postcode in and automatically they accumulate a grade um and my target grades were three c's and I still had it in my head that the teachers would be contributing towards that and the teachers would be um supporting the grade because they were the only ones who knew me academically they were the only ones who had experienced what I was like in a classroom. They taught me. So I was like, it's okay. My teachers know what I'm like. I will get my target grades. And then the algorithm results day came. I call it the algorithm results day because it wasn't a true results day. Um, and I got two Ds and a C. And obviously two of them were below my target grades. And I think when the conversation started to happen about it being a postcode lottery. I live in a working class area. My postcode is a working class area. Um, And I saw this being reflected where my friends who lived in better off areas were actually getting their target grades and some actually got higher than what they were kind of targeted and predicted. And I'm thinking to myself, hold on a minute. I did not choose where I wanted to live in the world. My postcode does not define who I am people look at your postcode before they look at you. So was the U-turn too late for you then? The U-turn was too late for me um, and I was trying to apply through clearing and my hope was to go to Liverpool Hope University to read theology. So I was trying to apply for theology. At that point, I was just like, any uni can take me. I need to get in. Um, At that point, I wasn't getting into any uni, so I just had to go in a gap year. Um, And I kind of accepted it. But I was still frustrated because they could have just given us our predicted grades in the first place, our teacher assessment grades in the first place. There was so much stress and hassle that they could have easily avoided. Kids didn't, young people didn't get into uni because of these grades. I think, although my situation was bad, I don't think it was as worse as some other people. So, for example, my friend, I think she was predicted A's and A stars. And she was given B's and C's, which obviously for me, who's not necessarily exam academic, I was like, that's great. But they then got rejected from their unis. They didn't get in. They had to take a gap year. You're right. It's so frustrating that they didn't trust the teachers 
Because like you said, the teachers know you the best, yet they completely bypassed their professional opinion. But then they did a U-turn, so they admitted that they got it wrong. But it makes me question, why did you think that that was okay anyway? Exactly. Like, I'm not being funny. Gavin Williamson, you've never stepped foot in my classroom. You don't know what I'm like um, to even be in a classroom working environment with. You don't know what I'm like in an exam environment. You've never met me. You will hear my name one day um, because I will not stop with the education system fighting. Um, But I think... All our lives. So, for example, if we're going to the doctors and we're under 18, our parents speak for us because our parents know us or our guardian, our carers speak for us because they know us. And official things, our parents or guardians or carers are to speak for us because they know us. And when it's an education system that now all of a sudden our teachers don't know us, I'm thinking, how does that work? Even though it's only two years, that's two years more than the government have ever known me. (laughs) And I think it's an insult to the teachers as well because they they serve us more than the government do in the sense of educationally and I think it put teachers between a rock and a hard place because teachers didn't know what to say to us and these are people that we trust and conversate with and really do get to know and trust our education within them and they didn't know what to say to us so yeah I just think it was a big kick in the teeth for both teachers and students during that time both at a level even uni level and gcse levels but it's not just those who had exams that suffered an entire cohort of children teenagers and young adults suffered major disturbance across two academic years of school and college or sixth form shifts to online learning and entire year groups sent home repeatedly to self-isolate has led to a record-breaking educational gap. And the problem even extends to higher education. Reduced contact hours, less practical lab sessions, cancelled graduations, etc. all begs the question, what are Generation COVID actually paying for? Currently, we have the highest ratio of university charges to what you get for your money. So let's roll on to the start of the new academic year. September 2020. Well, due to lockdown and isolation, new problems now started to arise. Rates of mental health conditions in both young adults and children reached a record high, particularly in comparison with the older generations. For example, 26% of students reported feeling lonely, compared to only 8% of the adult population. On average, every week, another student takes their own life. One in six children are reported to have a mental health disorder. These findings are even more worrying when we realise that there already was an existing student mental health crisis before the pandemic. The current situation is just making things worse for Generation COVID. 67% of young people believe that this pandemic will have a negative long-term effect on their mental health, according to Young Minds. They say that the main worries are bereavement, concerns over friends, loss of education, and the prospects of finding a job and the future. So let's head into the end of 2020, when many young people are starting to apply for these jobs. Well, it's not looking that great there either, with three out of five job losses currently affecting under 25s, Generation COVID are hit the highest by unemployment too. 
To put this into perspective, this translates to roughly 1,000 to 1,500 unemployed young people in every parliamentary constituency. But even for those who can get a job, it's not looking that great if you want to use that money to buy a house. At the turn of 2021, house prices hit a record-breaking high, and despite the economic disruption caused by the pandemic, they continue to rise. But that's not the only record that was broken. For example, in London, currently house prices now average half a million pounds. Prices have surged at their fastest rate in almost 14 years. We have the highest rate of unearned income for the older generations, compared to earned income for the younger generations. As a result, understandably, most young people choose to rent. But renting comes with many problems. One is the lack of security. I spoke to IF co-founder Ashley Seagar to find out more. It appears that house prices have been given a considerable boost by the pandemic. Uh, Lots of people have looked to move out of the big cities into the countryside, Lots of people have thought, I'll buy a holiday let because people can travel to them in Britain if they can't travel abroad because of COVID. So demand has been given a significant boost. Terrible for young people, of course, who aren't generally homeowners. It's another of the impacts of COVID that particularly affect the young. So it's interesting that with COVID and and with Brexit, that double whammy, a lot of areas of the economy have taken a hit. So why is it that house prices have actually soared? I think it's partly also because there was so much uncertainty in stock markets and other markets that people with money to invest, pension funds, so on and so forth, and people with private pension funds thought, I'll get into property, Uh, it's reliable. Uh, And also, of course, the government um, introduced a stamp duty holiday which was another boost. And it's just another, another way that young people get hit. What we want in Britain is house prices to fall uh, because that would help young people. But government policy, it, particularly this, this government relies on older voters, its policy is constantly to boost house prices, in this case, by using public money, which I think is scandalous. But it, there's clearly has been two lots of demand added by the government, stamp duty holiday, and by people living in cities wanting to move out of out of town. So it's obviously for those reasons that most young people or Generation Covid, as we're calling them, rent. And renting can be like incredibly unstable. Um, And so far, renters have been protected from eviction. But do you think that we're going to see an avalanche of evictions soon? Well, the ban on evictions is ending at the end of this month government announced last week, I think, they're ending that. Uh, There will then be a period until the autumn where you have to give four months notice for an eviction as opposed to the previous two months. So tenants still have some protection. Um, I think though, in a fully functioning market, you shouldn't favour one or the other side, the, the landlord or the tenant. About half of all landlords have just one property And if suddenly tenants aren't paying rent and that person has lost their job as well because of COVID, you might have a landlord in great distress. I know that's not something that generally people sympathise with, 
but it remains the case that intervening in a market with, with something like an eviction ban can have adverse effects that you don't intend. It's the law of unintended consequences. I think we need to get back to normal uh, as quickly as we can. The economy is rebounding. That should that will help young people as well. Um, I agree that renting can be unstable. That said, of course, as we've regularly said at the Intergenerational Foundation, uh, young people increasingly are having to rent and the dream of owning their own home is disappearing into the future. Whilst the lack of security and economic issues are one big problem, space is another. Those who own a home have almost twice the space of those that rent. And particularly with COVID-19, most people are working from home, so this lack of space really falls hard on Generation COVID. This inequality has consequences in terms of major issues such as mental and physical health problems. I spoke to Melissa Boy, a researcher at IF, to find out more. Most young people rent, as you know, and due to lockdown over the past year, a high proportion of young people have been crammed into small spaces. So how does renting and this situation impact their mental health and well-being? I'm really glad that you asked that, actually, because what's not recognised enough is that there are mental health consequences of having to live in these small, cramped spaces. And most young people really struggle to afford to live in anything larger. And, you know, to help anyone understand why that is, um, let's just start off with your first point. You said that most young people rent. Um, We know that through your research that homes which are occupied by their owners are usually around 40% larger than homes that are being rented out. And with so many young people renting, what this tells us is that space and all of the benefits that come with space. So as you can imagine, you know, more privacy, access to a garden, being able to cook and wash when, you know, when it suits you, it's not as accessible for younger generations as it is for older ones. And we recently also found, um, so in our stockpiling space report, um, that a high proportion of younger people report a lack of outside space compared to older groups. You know, this is really worrying, um, but sadly not that surprising, given that it's becoming increasingly harder for younger people to buy their first homes. And there are more and more of these what we call microhomes, which are these tiny homes that are 37 metres squared or under popping up here and there on the rental market. Um, what I just described was the situation before the pandemic. You know, So now, as you can imagine, the situation is much worse because these living spaces, which were previously just a place that you sleep, you eat or you rest in, um, because of the COVID-19 crisis, it became the place where you had to study, where you had to work, um, where you had to spend most of your time and even do most of your exercise because, of course, gyms were closed and we couldn't go to parks as freely as we wanted to. Um, of course, uh, once you take all of this into consideration, it makes more sense why the mental health of young people has declined the most. And if we really want to address this moving forward, we really need to improve access to space uh, for young people. It's evident that a number of records have been broken regarding intergenerational fairness for Generation COVID during the pandemic. All the while, the government has been playing a generation blame game. The problem is that 
you know, spreading the disease amongst young people then leads to older people getting it. So young people themselves can get it and then older people can too. So do you think, is it the, the view of you and your colleagues that it's the young people who aren't perhaps washing their hands as diligently as they aren't, as they might using the hand gel? Those early days where everybody effectively seemed to buckle down, it's the, perhaps the youngsters who've lost their way. Well, we've got, we've got, it, 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 it is important for everybody to wash your hands to follow the social distancing. It's, it, you know, it's, it's hands, face, space, as in wash your hands, cover your face when appropriate, and stay two metres apart if you can, or one metre plus. Um, and we're going, you know, we will, we will take action if people go to, you know, big social events that are completely inappropriate, sadly, in a time of coronavirus. That was Matt Hancock speaking on LBC. But he's not alone. Of course, many students, many university students, are in the age bracket where we've seen the infection rates rise recently, as Chris was just explaining. My message to students is simple. Please, for the sake of your education, for your parents and your grandparents' health, wash your hands, cover your face, make space, and don't socially gather in groups of more than six now and when term starts. In fact, we could argue that over the last year, we've experienced the highest ever ratio of politicians hand-wringing to any actual action to help young people. I spoke to IF co-founder Angus Hanton to understand a little more about how politicians and political policy has dealt with Generation COVID over the last year. What do you think of the way that the political elite have dealt with young people over the last year, specifically with regards to the pandemic? Yeah, I think, I think the political elite have tried to ignore the fact that there are young people there at all. Um, they're thinking, well, the young people aren't, aren't at risk, but they really just get in the way and that they might spread the disease. So they've, they've thought, well, we can just lock them down. And they haven't really thought about it from the what's fair on young people. Um, particularly, I mean, it's just seemed to me extraordinary that they've carried on charging uh, full university fees um, and their attitude towards young people is very dismissive. I think the most radical thing for young people though that's happened in Covid is the budget. It seems boring but actually it really matters because this was a, a one chance in a generation for the Chancellor to say look we've all, we all know we've been through a national crisis that we're going to have to make radical change and it was his chance to switch the burden of taxation onto older people and onto wealth, and he chose not to. He's left wealth totally protected, um, and what he's done is he said we're going to increase, we are going to increase corporation tax, but otherwise we're going to freeze thresholds so in effect young people will end up very shortly, not straight away, paying significantly higher taxes. Um, so he missed a great opportunity, and that seems to me when we look back on, on government responses to COVID, in five years' time, that's going to seem the significant one. A terrible mischance. I mean, you mentioned the budget, which is, you know, one political policy which disadvantages young people massively. Another is arguably the vaccine programme. Now, understandably, the vaccination programme hasn't been in favour of younger generations. And, and this does make medical sense because, you know, the virus is disproportionately harmful to the older generations. I, I know there are some exceptions in this, and I'm... I guess I am generalising a little bit there, but something that is concerning is the idea of vaccine passports. From an intergenerational fairness perspective, 
especially with the prospect of travel only being allowed for those who've been vaccinated? Do you think that we're suddenly going to experience, you know, record levels of mobility for the older generation compared to the young who end up being stuck in the borders? Yeah, it does seem very, un very unfair on younger generations that they that they may well be sort of trapped because they haven't been vaccinated and they haven't been vaccinated simply because they're young. So they're, 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 they're missing out through absolutely, or they may well miss out through absolutely no fault of their own. How do you think then travel is going to change because of all of this? So do you think we're going to experience like a massive influx of older generations traveling? For the last few years, older generations have done a lot more traveling than, than younger generations, disproportionately. They've got the time, they're healthier than um, people were in the past, and they've got the money. And I think that'll be exaggerated, even, that'll happen even more so in the next year or two, because they've, they've, had, they've got the money and it's really burning a hole in their pockets. They know they haven't got forever to spend it. They've, they've, they haven't been able to eat out, they haven't been able to go on holiday. So particularly for baby boomers, there's a huge pent up ability to pay and a huge pent up enthusiasm to travel. Um, by contrast, I think younger people are likely to be traveling less um, and uh, trying to effectively pay the bills that have been built up either personally or through their taxes. Do you think there maybe is a prospect that the elder generations will be, I guess, worried about traveling? And actually that might dissuade them from going anywhere. I guess it's very hard to predict, isn't it? Because it's all very hypothetical, but that is, is the other side of the argument. It is very hard to predict. I think what, what I've observed is that people fall into two different categories. Those who are apprehensive and those who want to get on with life. Um, so I think there will be a, a, a quite a chunk of people who will think, oh, well, better not to travel um, and, and stay at home. But I think the majority will think, well, we've had our two vaccinations. Um, we take precautions, life has got to be lived, we've got the money in the bank, let's go. And what would you say to politicians on how they've dealt with Generation Covid over the last year? M many bits of mismanagement uh, of the pandemic um, have been kind of forgotten about and are lost because the vaccine programme has been so successful um, and the 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 policy of pumping money into the economy has, has appeared very successful. So I think they're, they're pretty complacent about it. And the recent uh, local elections where the Conservatives did very well across the country um, will only reinforce that complacency. Um, so although I'm very non-party political on it, it doesn't mean I can't see, see how they've reacted. Um, and I would, I would say that they've, they really don't care enough about the younger generation to worry, which is a great shame. I think another effect of the um, pandemic on, on, on younger generations is, um, is that when you pump a huge amount of money into the economy, uh, several hundred billion pounds, you get um, inflation. And that is starting to emerge quite sharply, not just in, in the US and in commodity prices, but in the UK. Um, it's not appearing yet very much on the, the official measures, but we've all seen it terms of price of tickets and price of all sorts of things going up. Um, so, so inflation is happening and that is really interesting from the point of view of young people because they, they really suffer from inflation. They've often got cash savings if they've got any savings at all and those are eroded by inflation and their incomes are fixed in 
in monetary terms so that they tend to reduce in real terms with inflation. By contrast, the older generation are much more likely to own property, which goes up with inflation, and the older generation's pensions are index linked. So they're protected from this. So the effect of inflation may be a real reduction in young people's pay um, and a real reduction in their savings through, through them actually doing nothing. What message then do you have for Generation COVID? Those who have lived and been on the receiving end of all of these unfair policies. The A-level U-turn was an incredible show of how a group of young people protested and created change. Yes. There's a limit, I think, to how much we can do. And having spoken to quite a lot of young people over the last month, we need help as well. It's not just protesting and, you know, signing petitions and writing to our MPs. If they don't want to do anything, they're not going to. And they're under no political obligation to listen to us. You know, there might be a moral obligation, but that's not policy driven, is it? I think there's huge hope for Generation COVID. They've, what they've done is they've shown uh, their resilience. Um, they've shown their realization of uh, what intergenerational fairness looks like and, and the sorts of things they could do about it. Um, and most of all, it's given, a, in some respects, it's given Generation COVID a huge boost because what it's shown is what really matters in the modern world is internet skills, online skills. And those are very much more with the what, what are called digital natives um, uh, than they are with the older generation. So, so the, the prospects for, uh, for young people in some respects, as long as they uh, protest against unfairness and seize the opportunity, the prospects in some ways are better than ever. Angus is positive, but what does the future hold for Generation COVID? One of the big concerns that I have is how do we pay for everything over the last year? I return to Ashley to see what he says. We've talked about how do you pay for COVID? And the traditional answer would be, well, you put taxes up. Traditionally, you might put income tax up. That's your biggest earner as a government. You put some something on income. The problem is then you leave retired baby boomers who are sitting on a nice big house untaxed and not making a contribution to balancing the budget where we've done all this collapsing of the economy in order to help essentially old people because they're the ones who die from covid not young people um, so we think you have to do our root and branch reform of the tax system because you can't add on ever more burden through income tax onto young people because income tax obviously affects people who are working Generally, they're under 60, under 65. So they're middle-aged people and young people. Whereas the ones who've had the huge house price rises and who the economy was stopped for to help, they're the ones who would get away scot-free if you didn't tax assets higher or, or more, which would enable you, hopefully, to lower income tax for young people. We're arguing, we did a paper a while ago, the Intergenerational Foundation saying, we've got to reform the tax system, we've got to tax assets more and income certainly not more and hopefully less. It looks like there still may be more intergenerational injustice to come unless major reforms take place. The story of Generation Covid is not over yet. But for now, there we go. 
From the first lockdown to the current vaccination programme, a year in the life of Generation COVID. For a deeper discussion on some of the topics touched upon in this series, we have separate podcast episodes dealing with mental health, housing, the job market, even politics. Check out the What If podcast series by the Intergenerational Foundation on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and a range of other platforms. Fighting for equality amongst current and future generations is something that we should all strive towards and is central to the work of IF. If any of the topics and discussions in this month's podcast have caught your attention, then head over to www.if.org.uk, where IF have conducted incredible research into the topic, or follow the Intergenerational Foundation on Twitter, Facebook, and even Instagram. That's all from us for season one. What if? What if? What if? What if? A monthly podcast series in partnership with IF, the Intergenerational Foundation.